Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Yaron Weitzman about his book, Tanking to the Top, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Professional Sports. Yaron covers the NBA for Bleacher Report, and this is his first book. Yaron Weitzman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I uh, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for coming on. It's great to have you. Um, I wonder if you could start us off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, how far are we going back? No, I grew up in, uh, I grew up, or was born and grew up in New York, Westchester, which is a kind of a suburb right outside Manhattan, um, New Rochelle, which some people might know from the news now. Um, uh, yeah, I kind of always love sports. I'll give the cliff notes, right? Always love sports. You know, you know, you grew up, um, I think so. I'm about, I'm about 32. How old are you? Not the I'm 42. 42. So you're a little older. I'm curious what you like. I find my age, and you might be in the same generation too. If you grew up in the I'll call it the shadow of Moneyball and the fantasy baseball era, and it's like everyone wanted to be a GM, um, and you look at sports, you start thinking of sports from like a GM perspective. Um, at least I find that with a lot of my friends, you know. Um, right. Um, so- I'm certainly there with a the fantasy aspect that may be a little. Uh, a little late on the Moneyball thing, or yeah. just because I, I was, a, I am a little older. Yeah, so I just, so I guess, like you know, I always wanted to be a GM, right? That was the dream job when you're 12 or 14. Also, you know, um, it's also the stereotypical. I'm the uh, the Jewish kid who, you know, was half decent, but knows he's not playing, so figures has to right. figure out some other way. Um, so uh, yeah, so then I went, I went to um, NYU and I majored in sports management actually. But about halfway through, I realized the whole management part not really for me. Uh, the business side mm-hmm. not my thing. The management side not my thing. Not what I enjoyed. So I started writing for the paper and blogging. Um, I don't know, like this was back when like your blogs were like you made your own blog. Um, and I think if I look back, I'd be very scared. But I feel like it'd be a bunch of awful Bill Simmons impersonation you know, in terms of writing, like writing about like my night out as if anyone else cares um, and how that relates to like the, nine, the 2005 Knicks. Um, so that, but then, uh, yeah, so from there I got a job covering local sports. You know, it's a classic thing, high school sports in the local paper, like from girls high school basketball. I was a beat writer, um, girls cheerleading, which uh, I got yelled at more by moms there than I do for like my NBA coverage. Um <laughs> And I'm not even exaggerating. I got accused of bias for writing about. I forgot. I forget why. But I was accused of uh, favoritism. Um, wow. Yeah, it was good. Um, I think well, actually, well, actually, I'll tell. It's funny. I believe I remember the story. Like, so that there was a. Uh, this is completely tangent, but I think it's a funny story. Um, there was a uh, a meet, a cheerleading meet I covered once, and this was a local paper. And like the deadly, you know, the, the paper closed. You know, everything was in, and like had to be handed in, done by like nine forty five at night, right? And the newspaper business wonders why it's not doing well, right? But or why it <laughs> kind of failed. Um, and like the cheerleading meet started, let's say eight o'clock. So I. I had to file 
and I think meet is the right word. If not, I apologize. But I had to file my story, you know, way before any final results, meaning I had to kind of find a human interest story or something, and I couldn't actually go off the winners or losers. And I wrote like one of the schools, like their bus broke down, and I wrote about that. And oops, I apologize about that. Um, one of the schools broke down. One of the, their bus broke down, and. Uh, so I wrote about that. I was accused of favoring them because I didn't write about the winners. Um, anyway, t- tangent. Yeah. So from there, I started. I got an internship at Slam Magazine through like you know networking and started pitching everywhere I could. Um, and like one of the first big stories I wrote was about Ray Rice and his connection to New Rochelle. Um, I wrote that for SB Nation Longform, and I wrote a couple pieces for the New Yorker and something for ESPN.com and The Ringer. Like I wrote about why Jim Nance gives away his ties. Um, after national championship games. Um, I spoke to him about that. And then my big break essentially was um, with Bleach Report was I pitched them a story and did it on a, a where are they now on Adam Morrison, where I don't know if everyone remembers, but he was the Gonzaga star who was basically a bust in the NBA. Not basically, he was a bust, a number three pick, and he was kind of famous for crying on the court and he was looked different, you know, white guy, long hair and mustache, kind of counterculture. Um, and there was news about that. He had like an apocalypse bunker. People were making fun of him about it. And I went out to Spokane and spent two days with him. He took me shooting at his private gun range. We played golf. Um, he showed me his bunker. We all laughed then. I think in hindsight, maybe he was ahead of something, you know, ahead of the time <laughs> there. He might have been onto something. Um, and that story kind of got me in the door Bleach Report. It did well. It was a good story. Um, from there, I started covering the Knicks and some NBA. And then. I became a quote unquote national writer and that sounds more important, but the way I just, it's not that the way I just explain it is that it's a national audience. So your job is to find stories that resonate with a national audience, NBA and being in New York with the Knicks and the Nets um, that wasn't happening in New York. So I started heading down to Philly a little bit. That was when the team was kind of on the rise and covered them for a playoff run. And from there kind of thought, Oh, this would be a good book idea. And that's sort of what this came about. So I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that was great. Um, so in the title, you referred to the most audacious process in the history of professional sports. Um, for our listeners who may not know as much about the NBA as you or I, can you please explain what the process is? Sure. The most simple way I'll do it is, you know, they're essentially going to take advantage of in professional sports. And I always find this funny, right? You have a bunch of free market absolutists like these owners, and yet they're so worried about protecting themselves and they start to have a, you know, a more socialistic thing where if you're bad, you get, and I'm not, I mean, that in a critical way, but if you're bad, you get more, you get a good draft pick, right? The worst team gets the highest draft pick. Um, the Sixers decided, so the Sixers decided they would take advantage of that system. We're going to be really bad for a few years with the hope of being great for many years. That would be how I would kind of summarize it. So essentially built a team to lose. The good comparison, if you've seen Major League, the first Major League movie where she builds the <laughs> team to lose, um, this is that. Though there was no, um, there's no, uh, there's no cutout of the owner where they were stripping off the pieces to see to see him naked. But other than that, this is pretty similar. See, now you're hitting my age demographic. <laughs> really, it's an all-time like good movie. Oh yeah. Um, this, I, this is kind of a random question, but I I know that the the Sixers trademarked. Did they trademark the process or trust the process? Trust them. Oh, yeah, the Joel Embiid trademarked the process. The Sixers trademarked trust the process. So was that was that a factor 
in you coming up with a title for your book? Was that something you had to worry about? Uh, yeah, let's say the title was supposed to be something very different until the last minute when it was made clear that a uh, very tall person would likely, representatives for him, would likely take legal action. So I guess I'll leave it at that. <laughs> wow. Okay. That's yes. interesting. Um, so jumping into it, obviously a, a huge character, maybe the most important character in the book is Sam Hinkie who was very much the architect of the process. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about his history um, prior to coming to the 76ers and, and maybe a little bit about personality would give us an idea what kind of guy Sam Hinkie was? Yeah. He's, uh, he's, still, he's still with us. <laughs> still with us. He is, yes. Different, um, unique in the literal sense, right? Like he's very, like literally unique in terms of one of a kind. So he grew up in a small town, Oklahoma, was a jock fair. I don't mean that in personality. I just mean that, you know, he loved sports. He was really good. Uh, high school basketball and football. He probably could have walked on division one level if he wanted to and like gone the assistant coach, you know, maybe become a scout route, you know, hope to work your way up. But he thought differently. Um, yeah. And from there, it's, I don't, I don't know. He, he always thought differently. Even like he tells a story, there was quotes from him. I don't even, I don't even know how to summarize it like i could look it up but i don't even know how to summarize it talking about like the first date he had with his now wife and just like the way he processed it is you know talking about why well, i knew that i wanted to spend the rest of my life with her but he says it in a in a way and i wish i had the quotes in front of me and if someone's actually curious they could look it up but he almost sounds like a robot the way he talks about it where it's like i did the math and i noticed that and he proposed early and i knew that i wanted to be with her forever and because of that i proposed early because i don't know i'm not i'm not doing it justice but just a different kind of guy um the other thing to important to know about him is that and this is really sad obviously his brother committed suicide his brother um shot himself when Sam was 10 and his brother was 17 and that certainly affected him. Um, so he goes, he goes to, uh, goes to Oklahoma, goes to college there, then goes to get an MBA from Stanford. And from there decided he always wanted to work in sports and like he, in Oklahoma, he was on, you know, all the, um, the leadership count committees and every special, uh, after school pro, not after school, every special program for students and all that. And he was doing all that. Um, he always wanted to work in sports. Um, he goes to Stanford, gets some internships, um, maybe with the 49ers first, but then with the Houston Texans, the NFL, um, reaches out, sends like a basically a letter, and it stands out because this guy's a Stanford MBA, and this is when these kind of guys, you know, now every team has 14 of these guys, but this was different back then, um, so it stood out. Um, gets a job there. He's, he's worked on a lot of work for them in the draft and prepping. Um, wants to stay on. They don't have a position for him. Sends a letter to the Houston Rockets. Um, the, I guess his general manager then. Again, the, the resume stands out. The resume is brought to him. It stands out because a Stanford guy who has NFL experience wants to work. Figure the Houston Rockets, this guy named um, Carol Dawson says, oh, it'd be great to have somebody different here, right? We have all former players. Let's bring in a different perspective. Gets in the Houston Rockets, um, stays there forever. Happens to be that this guy named Daryl Morey gets promoted. He becomes the Rockets chief, I don't know, president GM. Um, and he's sort of the the closest thing in the NBA to Billy Bean in terms of a pioneer. And even Michael Lewis, right, did a big New York, New York Times magazine profile of Daryl Morey. I don't know. Or the Rockets and Daryl Morey and Shane Mardier like 10 years ago, maybe even longer. Um, basically positioning him as the Billy Bean of the NBA. Um, so that's, you know, with him, he rises up, Hinky rises at his side. From there, the Sixers hire him to sort of 
execute this plan of tearing the whole thing down. I think that's also a key part is, so he was the architect, but like, you know, if you hire an architect to renovate your house, the architect is also carrying out your vision. Um, Hinky was carrying out the ownership vision. They were all on board. Ownership in 2011, it was new ownership. It was some private equity guys who came in and basically figured they'd apply private equity principles to the NBA, to running an NBA team. Right. So obviously this this is this is not the first process in sports, right? I mean, I mean it became known as the process, trust the process. It became controversial around the league. Um, but certainly other teams have, have tanked in the past and will do so in the future. What made this, this process unique and why did it become so controversial? Um, they took it deep further than anyone else, I believe. Right. I mean, in other sports, yeah, like the Houston Astros were kind of similar, um, but they took it further. We've seen teams do it a little bit, but not as egregiously um, in terms of like not having any veterans really on your team. Uh, <laughs> just willing to go right. This went three. This was went three years before Hinky was ousted, and it would have gone more probably, right? Um, or maybe one or two more. That's longer. Usually, you see one, maybe two. Um, the other part is Hinky's personality. There's a bunch of things, right? Hinky represented the changing of the guard among the NBA, and a lot of people didn't like that. Um, and you see that in baseball too. The whole idea of old school versus new school. Hinky represented new school. His personality was um polarizing. Um. He very much believed in the work that the work would prove it, and he believed that, like, in the idea of keeping a competitive advantage and not, you know, not gossiping to media or not gossiping to other teams, and just keeping things. Not because he thought he was better than people; he just thought it didn't, it didn't serve him. Everything it was very, um, yeah, it was zero sum. You know, it was the the idea of like everything, every decision is looked through and through the lens of, or is perceived through the lens of, will this help me? Right? There's no the, the switch was never turned off. Um, so you combine all that and how he's different and he speaks differently and you see this everywhere, right? And just a lot of people took it as a challenge to the way things normally are. Gotcha. There's, there's a fascinating story in the book. Um, I found it fascinating about Hanky. Um, just within the context of everything that happens and the way things play out, um, in which he, uh, I, I think he was talking to Josh Richardson, uh, uh, Jason Richardson. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he said something to the effect of, "I need a back door, wherever he was. I need a back door because everybody's going to hate me." Yeah, and the rest. And he was asking for a restaurant. He was, he was asking for a restaurant recommendation. Um, okay, right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah I, I found that quote just fascinating because uh, it was so, you know, it, it really, it really foretold what was about to happen or what would happen in a couple of years and. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that quote and and maybe share with our listeners how you came across that. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a great quote because it shows he was aware. He was aware of like, you know, people wouldn't like him, right? He's basically the the background is that he made a big trade in his first draft of the team two months in. They trade their best player, Drew Holiday, who's like twenty three, twenty four. Um, an all-star, but the assessment was he was signed for four more years. He was owed big money. We're not going to win a championship while he's under contract. Let's trade him now because we'll get max value. Um, after that trade, one of the veterans, one of the lone remaining veterans, this guy named Jason Richardson, calls and uh, reaches out. You know, wants to have a meeting. See so just what the deal is. Like, is there still a place for him in the team? Um, him and his manager uh, go have a meeting with Hinky, and they talk. At the end, Hinky, you know asking for rest amount of recommendations they give him son and he goes was there a back door because everybody in the city i'm gonna have to sneak out because everybody in the city is gonna hate me 
Um, so just telling he, but he like he was aware. He just thought you know he would save like that they all wanted the same thing. He just knew better than fans had to deliver to them, and that you know he was sort of saving them from themselves, and that the work would speak for itself, and that eventually it would all pay off, right? And they'd win, and he'd be celebrated. Um, and not in, not in an egotistical way that he would also deliver them what they wanted. Um, the way I got that story is actually, you know, Jason Richardson's manager <laughs> talking to her just, and the, so the Sixers did not participate in this book. They sort of blocked me wherever they could. Um, so I, you know, when that happens, you kind of have to go digging deeper. Um, so I spoke to Richardson he mentioned his manager went with his meeting. So I reached out to her and I don't know. I just journalistically, I love, I'm like, those are the ones where I pat myself on the back. If I may, was just like you made a random extra phone call to somebody that no one else would speak to and you get this great anecdote that just is so telling i saw that you i, I haven't heard it but i saw that you did uh jeff perlman's podcast two writers yes. slinging yang and uh i'm a big fan of perlman's i've listened to that podcast a number of times i've read his books great guy i don't know him personally but seems like a great guy i've, I've emailed him a little and he uh one of his favorite lines is always make the extra call mm-hmm and, uh, you know, people, I, authors I've spoken to is, I mean, that's a great example, you know, right? Uh, if, if you think of somebody who might be helpful, um, call them because you never know what they could have to offer. For sure. For sure. Especially if you're being blocked a little bit, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You got to kind of don't like, I'd like to think I would still do that if like Embiid and Brett Brown and Sam Hinkie and all these people were giving me five hours. Um, I'd like to think I still would, but honestly, you know, deadlines are tight, right? It's easier to not to. That's what's a good sure. lesson for myself as well. Yeah. Yeah, so as, as you just stated, and, and you note very early in the book, I think right in the in the uh, prologue um, or preface, uh, that the 76er did not cooperate in this, in this process, in your process. Um, why do you, do you have an idea why they might have been unwilling to talk? Um, no, honestly, no, I don't get, I mean, yeah, why at first, at first it's easy to say no. Like, you know, I don't think they want this book out. Not, I don't mean that like in a, in a conspiratorial way, I think just, um, it's one ready for it, right? It's not a story there. Like it's not a story they want to tell. Like there's no, I mean, even if and I get it, right. Like, it's not like there's no way the book is that they're amazing. Um, and I, I write it pretty down the middle, but like they didn't win a championship or anything. Um, so it doesn't fully work. Um, so there's that. Um, it's easier to say, no, they said a bunch of people were doing books also. Um, that I found out is both true and not true. Right. I think a bunch, there are, def- I think a bunch of people reached out, about interest, but like, you know, I would explain as a difference between saying, Hey, I want to write a book versus, Hey, I have a book deal and the book's coming out on this day. Right. Um, so there's that part of it is like they're the whole process thing. They don't love that being part of their history though. Again, they'll they'll say that, but then trademark trust the process. Right. So it's kind of like <laughs> talking to both sides of your mouth. Um, yeah. Then why? And then, yeah, I mean, I don't have, but then why, but why from a, PR standpoint, when I say PR, I should always, like, I'm not always clear on this. Like the decision is coming above PR, right? Like the, above the PR staff, they're not the ones making the decision. But why from a public relations standpoint, you know, lowercase p, lowercase r, are you not um, bringing me in off the record to talk about things or like try to, you know, try to spin me? I, I don't know. You know, I don't know at all. <laughs> I don't have a good reason. Yeah. Um, no, I hear you with that last point, especially why not get, you know, their viewpoint out there. Mm-hmm. but who knows um so probably the biggest reward of the process and mm-hmm. we'll get into later on of whether the process worked or not clearly there were positives and negatives there were the you know you drew well and beads and ben simmons and there was julia local and nerland noel and markel fultz um 
I think everyone would agree, Embiid was the biggest prize, the biggest reward of this process. And he comes across in the book as kind of a complex character. Um, everybody knows he's a, he's a prodigious talent, but there were there are some questions about his maturity and his commitment, specifically his diet, which is you know quite comical at times, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little about Joel Embiid? Um, yeah, he's, uh, he's really, um, he's a different kind of guy, right? He's like both, um, confident and funny and full personality, but also an introvert. And, you know, he grew up shy. It took him a lot of fine skin. He kind of picked up basketball when he was 15, I don't forget, 15, 16, whatever the age was. And, you know, was really good at it and sort of a genius, probably a genius in all terms, right? Basketball genius, but also, you know, like he's funny in his second language. I always like to use that. Like that's so hard to do, right. Um, to be funny in your, in a language that you had to pick up. Um, and like, I think it does take a level of genius to pick, do that. Um, he's also, yeah. And he, and he recognized early on in his Sixers tenure that he was the most powerful person in the organization, right? Because he's a superstar and superstars are what matter most in the NBA. So sometimes that can lead to issues like him not showing up in shape. Well, it's showing up, in shape and uh you know brett brown i have a story about him telling the medical staff like we're all gonna get fired if we don't fix this um other times it's good like when you know this is after the book this happened last week when but when ownerships tries to cut a bunch of salaries uh employees salaries by 20 percent, and Embiid basically publicly bullies and embarrasses them and <laughs> they change it they go against it right they change their decision um that's an example of him using his power for good um so yeah just a really interesting guy i enjoy him I enjoy his personality. I think as a basketball fan, you wish you dedicate himself to the craft a little more, meaning being in peak shape and things like that. Um, but just a lot going on. You know, it comes, you know, he comes over to the NBA in his rookie year, early in his rookie year. I mean, he missed his first two seasons with a foot injury or two separate foot injuries. Um, early in his rookie year, he finds out his brother dies back in Cameroon, like a truck, uh, a, uh, I don't know, runaway truck. I don't know what the proper term is. Um, ran through like uh, into a school playground or something something horrible um now obviously that affects him right so you have all these interesting different things that and that ended up being like a con a theme in the book just how all these complex backgrounds um things we don't see things that happen behind the scenes way before we even got to meet these people um how these affect who these people become and what we the players that the people we do see um and so speaking of a beat of course i and I assume you've gotten this question many times, but I have to ask it anyway, because it's it's the question surrounding the Philadelphia 76ers right now and in the foreseeable future is the relationship between Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, their other superstar, um, both off the court and on the court from a chemistry standpoint. Um, how would you describe the relationship between those two? I kind of now describe it. I wish I used this in the book. I feel like it's like the college roommates that like you don't like each other necessarily at first, but you're with each other for a while and you grow a healthy respect for each other, right? Even though some things might bother. Um, some of the habits from one another might bother. Um, like it starts like on the court, they're just, they're both fantastic. They don't fit well on the court. It doesn't mean you can't overcome it. But, you know, there's just no, like their their skill sets clash. Um, so that's my first thing, right? Uh, from there, like they're not best friends. Um, they're both a bit quiet and introverted and both want to be the spotlight and stars. And so again, you could see how there could be issues. Um, they've never had like any fist fights or anything like that. It's more passive aggressive comments, which again, they're both, I guess they're millennials, right? Like that age, um, or young, like that's not surprising that that's how they would act. Right. Um, 
And Embiid, like I love people sometimes say, what do you mean he's an introvert? He's so funny on Instagram and things like that. And again, I find that very, I'm not going to say millennial behavior, but it's a class. It just, it's, I think that's more typical among people his age than we probably think, right? Like you can be boisterous on social media, but in, in person, you can be more introverted um, and quiet. That's probably pretty common. Um, and that those two things can exist at the same time. Um, yeah. And so, the, I mean, it's a great question. Like what, what's the future with him? Um, the issue, I mean, we, not to go, we can go deep on basketball, but the roster built around them was sort of, uh, there haven't been made good decisions made in terms of the roster building around them. Um, and I think that is more of an issue than the two of them sharing the floor. As you noted, we, we use the architect analogy that, that Hinky was the architect, but he wasn't the owner, right? And of course, there's, there's this guy, Josh Harris, who is the owner. And um, he was, you know, as you detail in the book, he was very much on board with the process until he wasn't. And Hinky had some missteps in the draft. I named a few, Noel, Okafor, Fultz. Um, but you allude to some other factors in the book as to why Hinky eventually departed the Sixers. Um, can you talk about that for our listeners a little bit, why Hinky eventually left the team? Yeah, there's kind of like a million things. It was, I hate the cliche, but more of like a straw that broke the camel's back thing, right? Like, um, so there's some mis- draft picks and, you know, he Sixers, the business side of the Sixers were not happy because, I mean, it's not easy to sell a team that stinks. Um, the NBA wasn't happy because, for obvious reasons, right, it looks bad if one of the teams isn't trying. It's sort of pulling the curtain on the whole thing. Um, other owners weren't happy. They're telling they're telling Josh Harris and League it's not good for business. Um Agents weren't happy because one of the teams removes itself in the marketplace and Hinky was also, you know, insisting he would try to pull, he would try to find every loophole possible in terms of the collective bargaining agreement, in terms of how to sign contracts, how to do them, how to treat thing players and not give full salaries, you know, that like not hit the salary floor, things like that. They had all these different straws, all these different wins swirling. And then the final straw is Julia Loco for the draft pick is sort of seen drunk on a TM- TMZ gets a video of him stumbling around drunk around Boston streets. And, um, and from there, and that makes it, you know, that's on. And from there, you know, that becomes it. That becomes the last one where the league office is calling angry. Josh Harris decides to bring in lawyers to run, do depositions to see what's going on. And there was sort of no coming back for Hinky from that. Another fascinating character in the book is Markel Fultz, who, uh, for those that don't know, was the first pick in the 2017 draft. Uh, in fact, the Sixers traded up with the Celtics to get that pick um, and very quickly became the most perplexing story in all of sports. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Markel Fultz's struggles and how the, how the Sixers dealt with them? Yeah, I mean, Markel Fultz, one of the things to remember about him is that he was, yeah, he was, it, a lot of number one picks are kind of groomed for that, like Ben Simmons, right? I think he knew when he was like 13 that he was going to be a lottery pick. Markel Fultz was still playing JV basketball when he was a sophomore. Um, so from the age of 15 to like, from sophomore year to bet in about two and a half years after that, he's a number one pick, right? That's a, that's a fast rise for him and his family. Um, so you remember all that's going on. There's some weird stuff with maybe he was changing his shot a little bit. Um, he he had a little injury in summer league uh, that maybe then he started shooting again after that, kind of changed some of his muscle memory. But then what's going on behind that is there are all these 
all these stresses, like his mom is sort of, and again, there's some background there. Like her, his mom was abandoned as a kid. I believe her parents left. She was raised by her grandmother. Um, so you can understand how a reaction to that would be. I'm going to be overprotective of my child. Right. Um, but things like putting cameras outside the house so she can hear and see who was, uh, who was coming in and out when faults is the number one pick, um, getting upset at the, uh, at the manager, at Fultz's best friend who's serving as Markel Fultz's manager for not handing right. out flyers properly in the street because neighbors were giving Markel Fultz Chick-fil-A sandwiches and she wasn't happy about that. Um, <laughs> things like that, making him saying, choose me or him, which is not a choice. Um, and while all this is going on, his shot is just deteriorating. Like he basically, it's, we've seen this in baseball, but he get, basically gets a yips for a basketball shot, right? He forgets how to shoot. His shot looks completely different. He can't shoot his elbow. It just, it doesn't work. Um, the whole time he's insisting it's a shoulder injury. Lots of people were and remain dubious about that. Um, Fulton and his camp have been insistent that have insisted that no, it is. Um, yeah, it's one of the strangest NBA sagas we've seen really ever. And he was diagnosed with uh, thoracic outlet syndrome. Yeah, he was ultimately. Uh, yep. Were the Sixers skeptical about that though? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He went to a bunch of doctors, and they finally found one. And then, like they, the way they announced it is. Um, I forget the timeline. Maybe they told him he wasn't playing. I think they pulled him from the team without telling him. I told a reporter before telling the Sixers. Um, And then, yeah, the the short answer is, yeah, they were certainly dubious about that stuff. Right. How did Sixers fans feel about the process and Hinky as it was going on? And and now, in retrospect, looking back at those years? Um, I mean, it's hard to summarize... It's hard to summarize an entire fan base, right? But the, what sure. was interesting, it did, it did see there was a breakdown. It's okay. So Hinky, he developed a really loud, loyal fan base, and the breakdown was there was often a lot of younger fans, um, a lot of fans. You know, I mentioned myself as like someone who grew up in the you know thinking of things differently, the Moneyball era, fantasy baseball. Um, a lot of people like that, so they're thinking of they process their fandom through a team building perspective, through the GM perspective, through of like, this is what I would do if I were the GM and they were happy. Cause this, this, you know, this was the best strategy probably um, tanking at least maybe not the things in the margins, but the, uh, the, uh, the, in a simplistic way, tanking is, was the smartest strategy for them in terms of getting good, getting, we're trying to win a championship. Um, so a lot of young fans weren't that people grew up reading, you know, not just like the look, not just the Philadelphia Inquirer, but blogs and analytics and stuff like that. You know, they, they were pro, um, a lot of older fans and older media types were not um, fans. If you think about it, it's um, you know sometimes people like if you're 50, if you're fifty at a full day of work and you come home and you don't really care the same way. You just want to watch a team every night that's going to compete and entertain you for a little bit, right? Um, and that's different. That was not that was not happening there. Um, what did happen? What was interesting though is so they're the young fans. They were so a bunch of pro, and then it's almost like a union, right? These two podcast hosts. Um, or these two fans became, made themselves, um, create a podcast and it became this, it became sort of the, the voice of the hinky of the process fans of the hinky fans. Um, and it was only like why compared to a union, it's like, you know, they organized, galvanized and mobilized all these people into one coherent voice. Right. And by giving that, you give yourself even more of a voice and make yourself seem louder. Um, and when Hinky was ousted, they became, it was almost like the martyr, the martyr, right? Who goes down and like, then they rise up out of that. Um, and Hinky, that even made them louder and angrier. And it's interesting, like they have power, they have influence. They, um, you know, Sixers, the Sixers are aware of what this group of people think and what they say for sure. Right. And of course you talk about them in the book. Yep. 
Um, you seem to conclude at, at the end of the book that the process has reached its conclusion. And uh, I would certainly agree with that. I think when you're paying uh, Tobias Harris, was it 180 million and, and signing Al Horford to a tremendous amount of more money, that's, that's kind of the antithesis of, of the process. So um, in your opinion, was the process a, a excuse me was the process a success yeah i say so i mean like the the math i do is like they didn't matter before they gave up a few years um three basically and now they've mattered for three they've been a contender for three i think it's been three this, this would have been year three or is year three um you have to assume there's at least two or three more out of this right um yeah no i would say so like yeah you want to win a championship and there are some mistakes made um Again, it's not fair to judge Hinky fully on that. Like, you know, he got pulled off a project halfway through and three other, like nine other people are trying to complete it. So again, and he got pulled off partly for his own mistakes. Um, but if I'm going like simplistic, yeah, I think it's a trade-off. Like if you're a Sixers fan, like your team matters, you care. Like you're watching it every night. ESPN's talking about your team all the time. Um, I think I think it was a success. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. I mean, as a Knicks fan, um, give me the process. Right, like, exactly. I, don't, I, I don't need, you know, I don't need Julius Randle and Bobby Portis so we could win five more games. Like, let's, exactly. let's bottom out here and and get some top draft picks. Do you think Kinky will ever have another job in the NBA? No. Um, I just think yeah, it's like the way I describe it is like two Venn diagrams. Like a Venn diagram where the one circle is teams who'd be willing to hire him and absorb whatever pushback would come from that right and then the other one is the teams he'd be willing to work for right because he was he was scarred by he felt betrayed by how the sixers sort of ownership pulled the rug out from under him um and you know and he thought that was an ownership group that he could trust and he saw things in the same way so he wouldn't work for like he wouldn't work for anyone just anyone um he doesn't need to um so you like you take you take that list and i don't know you're down to i don't even i don't even know who maybe we can name two three p it just you know it seems it seems very unlikely um there's a sense throughout the book that that player development on and off the court may have been a weakness for those sixers um do you think do you think nerland's noel okafor faults do you think they may have had more successful careers if they had played for another team initially Ooh, that's a good question. Um, faults, maybe though. That a lot of that stuff, I think, was um, like that was not the, the Sixers. What the Sixers got a uh, a also whatever. It's not a nice phrase, but damage good, right? Like by the time he came to camp, the the a lot of the damage had been done. Um, so maybe another team could have fixed it or handled the situation differently or whatever. Um, the other guys, no, that's a good question. I mean, there are plenty. Of, I'll say this: there are plenty of people who would say, "Yeah, right." Who would say if they had some strong veterans, um, and like when I mean veterans, like I think people always sometimes think just if you play in the league for ten years, you're automatically a good leader, and that's not the case. But some legitimate yeah. leadership, right? Some legitimate guys who are actually interested in being mentors and leaders. Um, they got some guys like that played on some teams where you can kind of see some winning habits. Um, yeah, it's certainly possible, right? It's like the NBA is a lot of, you know, it's a nature versus nurture question, but I do I do think nurture plays a big role in the NBA for sure. Yeah, and even if, you know, if you talk if you talk to a lot of NBA players, they'll tell you, you know, at, they'll tell you the vets that showed them how to be professionals and how to conduct themselves in the league and how to, you know, on and off the court. For and sure. It, it's so much more important now than, you know, a generation ago because these kids are coming in the league at 19 and, you know, just have all this fame and 
uh, I mean, my God, when I think about the things that I was doing at 19, like I, I could have used, I used, I could have used a veteran with me at college. For sure. To rein For me sure. a little bit. No, exactly. But, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I agree. One other person I want, I did want to ask you about, and you've mentioned him is Brett Brown. Um, how did he feel uh, going through while going through the process? I mean, was he on board with the process, and how did he deal with with the, what had to be a frustrating few years? Yeah, I mean, he knew what he was signing up for, and he was hired because of that, right? Like, and he knew it. Like, he was really optimistic, and he was a good player development guy. They thought um, so for sure. Um, I don't think he, you know. It's one thing to know. It's another thing to live it. Um, like there's a story. I have a story in there. You know, the second year he's there, the Sixers have two lottery picks and they draft Embiid, who's injured and out for the year. And this guy named Dario Saric, who's uh, overseas and will his sign for another two years. And, you know, if him hit Brett Brown. So they had two lottery picks and use them on two players who won't be, wouldn't be like, you know, stepping on foot on the court all season and maybe more. Um, and Brett Brown turns to like an assistant and says, man, what does this mean? You know, and like, sarcastic or rhetorically i should say right he knows um mm-hmm. so yeah it's one thing to prepare for it but then living the losses every day and living the idea of you know brett tells a story a lot you know player comes in i say nice to meet you you're our starting point guard um so having <laughs> to deal with that um the revolving door for sure is uh is it's not easy for sure I'd, and i'd imagine that much more so coming from uh, such a stable and successful franchise as the San Antonio Spurs. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, all right, your own will. I've taken enough of your time. I'll ask you one final question that I like to ask of all of my guests. Um, sure. But first, once again, the name of your own book is Tanking to the Top, Philadelphia 76ers and the Most Audacious Process in the History of Professional Sports. Um, I highly recommend it. it. It's an excellent book. And uh, despite the lack of cooperation from the Sixers, it's it's apparent that it's extremely well-researched and just your own did a great job with it. So check it out. Um, Thank you. So my question, your own, is what is your all-time favorite sports book? Ooh, that is a good one. Um, I don't know if I have like a good answer. I, I feel like, I mean, listen, there's like the breaks of the game and like those classic answers. I always, ch- I change my answers. Oh, here's a random one. Okay. This was different. I bet you never got this one. I don't know if this is my all time favorite sports book, but I love this book. Um, the Horv Akron, the Horv Akron, Akron, excuse me, the Horv Akron by Scott Rabb. Um, he used to write for Esquire for years and it's about LeBron. It's, it's kind of a memoir. It's not a total sports book, but, um, he uh no it's a, it, but it's about him and he's a longtime Cleveland fan and he's he's a bit crass and he does you know he's not a sports writer and so in that way it's good like he's writing about the behind the scenes stuff that he sees and making fun of the reporters in ways that like you know usually someone who's in the field wouldn't do um he's hilarious I just uh I just it's about it's about I should say it's about LeBron's last year in Cleveland um it was supposed to be a book about um LeBron delivering a title ends up being about LeBron leaving and uh, Scott Rapp, the writer is a huge, a huge fanatic, uh, Cleveland sports fan. Um, I love that book. So I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's a bit different and just, I don't know. I really enjoy it. Yeah, that's a great answer. I, I, I haven't read that. I remember the book. I remember when it came out, but, uh, I'll have to check it out. All right. You're on. Well, thank you again so much for your time. I wish you the best of luck with this book. It's, uh, you, you caught a tough break. Nobody wants their book to come out during a pandemic, but, um, I, I wish you the best in spite of that. I appreciate it, Julia. Thank you for uh, having me on and the interest. Okay. Thanks, Jerome. Bye.